Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Welcome today. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Jeremy. I get the privilege of helping to lead our team at Commons, but I do most of that out of our Kensington Parish. And so I'm always thankful when I get the opportunity and I get the invitation from Scott to come over to this side, particularly because one, my son has some friends here. So he's always excited to go to Davin's church, so he always says. And also because uh, some of the core team that launched this Inglewood Parish just over a year ago was actually some of the core team that launched our Kensington Parish about five years ago. And so it's always great to look over the fence and cheer you guys on, but it's really great to be here with you every once in a while as well. Now that said, we've just come through Easter and Vision Sunday, and we are now off and running into Eastertide. And Scott put together this great little video this week talking about the importance of Eastertide, uh, this reminder that we need to celebrate just as well as we lament. And so if you haven't seen that yet, then head over to our YouTube channel and check it out. It's really great and a really good encouragement for this season. However, I'm also mindful today that we lost a really valued voice in the progressive Christian community this weekend. And Rachel Held Elvins was a writer that many of us had learned from. Her open and generous exploration of the divine was an incredibly welcome respite for a lot of us. And her death this weekend was a deep shock to all of us. And so please pray for her family and friends as they grieve that loss. I know many of you are grieving that loss as well. And then if you haven't, then perhaps to honor her, maybe pick up one of her books. We have a number of them on the lending bookshelf at the back of the room and just discover this incredibly honest, grace-filled voice that she left us with in community. Now, today we begin a new short three-week conversation that we have titled simply Wealth. And maybe this is a bit of a misnomer here because this is not really a conversation about your money. And we're gonna talk about money, uh, but what I'm really interested in here is talking about a broader imagination for how we see our place and our value and our investment in the world around us. Now, of course, money is certainly part of that because we live in a capitalist society, so we'll need to talk about it. But part of what I want to suggest in this series is that reducing our imagination of wealth to our bank accounts is actually a big part of our modern malaise. So today is no coveting. Uh, next week, we're gonna look at the relationship between generosity and justice. And then finally, I wanna talk about the pursuit of happiness. But first, a bit of a detour. Uh, one of the things that some of you know about me is that for whatever reason, I have never been particularly fascinated with a lot of the normal cultural expressions of wealth. Now, don't get me wrong, I have my issues. We'll get there, and that's actually the point, but when it comes to some of the more basic expressions of our consumer culture, I just find them tedious. Some of you know this, that I wear the exact same outfit 
every day of my life. It's not just Sundays. I met some people this week in Ontario and they said, we watch your YouTube channel, but you're wearing the same outfit every Sunday. I said, actually, this is every day. This is what I wear every day of my life for about five years now. I own six gray shirts that I had custom made to fit my strangely long and thin body. I own eight black t-shirts because sometimes you need an extra T. And they own fair, four pairs of the same jeans in very states of wear and that just works for me. I know where they came from. I know where the materials were sourced. I know where they were manufactured. I know about the working conditions behind them. And honestly, I have just never once woke up and wished that I had more options. I love getting out of bed and putting on what I wear. However, for others, fashion is a very significant part of how they express themselves. Uh, they dress for their day and they dress for their mood. They dress for the attitude they want to carry into their encounters that day and I get that. And that made me feel at least a little bit better when my son crushed my carefully crafted vigilant consumer fantasy a few weeks ago. We were sitting around the dining table and he said to me, Dad, I want a phone, a real phone, not the toy phone I have. And I said to him, look, you're five years old. You don't even have anyone to call. And besides, you already have your own iPad, which in itself is insane. And he said, actually, I want a new iPad and an iPhone and an Apple Watch. And I said, why on earth would you need any of that? And he said, why on earth would you need any of that? And this is the tricky thing as soon as we start to talk about wealth in Canada. Because it is very easy for us to shift the focus of the conversation to them. Those who have too much, those who have more than us, those who accumulate wealth in obscene quantities. And of course, the difficulty is that these are very real problems that we need to address in our society. Inequality and inequitable access to opportunity, that's a real barrier to a just society. But if our only response to all of these issues is about them and it's not about us and our choices, then we will forever be chasing ourselves in circles. Because here's the truth. All of the worst expressions of greed in our culture are products of a narrative that tells us to want what they have. And so today, I wanna to talk about mimetic desire. I wanna talk about planned obsolescence. I wanna talk about the 10 commandments. And then finally, a new way to imagine ambition. But first, let's pray. Gracious God of good and generous gifts, help us to begin to do the hard work of separating our imagination of ourselves from our resources. We are not our bank accounts. Our value is not defined by what we have to give. Our failings are not defined by what we don't. And yet, we want to learn what it means to live generously, to give freely and openly of ourselves and our resources, to carry our stories with a sense of community and care, to hold what we have been given with open hands, but also to consciously and carefully hold it so that we might be worthy of the responsibility inherent in receiving so much. We trust that you are the source of all that is good in our world. 
We believe that you are not finished with us or our story yet. Teach us what it is to play a part in your tale and to do it with a profound sense of joy. In the strong name of the risen Christ we pray, amen. Okay, let's start with mimetic desire. And that sounds fancy, but it's a term that comes from the work of a French sociologist slash theologian named René Girard. And some of you know that I spend a lot of time with Girard. I know about three of you read my thesis on Girard. Thank you for that. I know it was painful. I appreciate it. But Girard is an incredibly fascinating thinker. And I happen to think he offers a lot to our Christian imagination. And so I wrote about Girard and a Girardian reading of violent imagery and apocalyptic literature, but I am also working on putting together a series of videos that will give a more brief overview of some of Girard's big ideas, and those will start showing up on our YouTube channel in the next week or so. But one of his ideas, in fact, the one that underpins all of his theories and brings his work into contact with Christianity, is this idea of mimetic desire. Now, mimetic comes from the Greek word mimesis, which means imitation. And one of the things that we know about the human race is that we essentially become human through imitation. Uh, anyone who has a kid living in their home or who has been around a child for any length of time knows that they imitate everything, right? It's funny. As a parent, when you start seeing your child pick up on little mannerisms and mood swings and habits that they see around the house, sometimes it's cute and then sometimes it really causes you to evaluate your choices as a human being and the number of Apple products that you have around the house. But as human beings, this is how we learn. It's how we learn to walk, it's how we learn to talk. In fact, studies show that very little of the uniquely human characteristics that we know and love are actually innate. Instinct works well for birds, decidedly less so for the human experience. The truth is, most of us have terrible instincts. And so it's actually our ability to imitate, to pass ideas and patterns and paradigms from one generation to the next that sets us apart. Language being an incredible example of this. I mean, obviously, language is not instinctual. Humans all around the globe speak all kinds of wildly different languages, and they have to be imitated and learned and passed down every single time. And that enables all kinds of innovations to be passed down, preserved, propagated throughout the species. So innovation is great, but really it's imitation that's really powerful. Uh, Picasso once said that good artists borrow, great artists steal. And I think what he's getting at here is this idea that imitation is fundamentally at the heart of the human experience. Now, Gerard comes along, and what he starts noticing is that it's not just our actions and our patterns that seem to be imitative, it's even our desires. In fact, what Gerard says is that as human beings, we don't even know how to desire anything. In fact, all we do is copy each other. So, for example, I make a coffee, I love that coffee, you see me love that coffee, and you want a coffee. 
Now, maybe you really do like coffee, but at least part of what's happening is that you see my desire. You see my experience, you see what looks enjoyable, and you triangulate that onto an object like a drink. And you might actually enjoy coffee, but part of what's happening is that you desire the experience you watch me having. And Gerard develops this in some really fascinating ways. He recognizes how this mimetic desire inevitably leads to conflict, how that conflict limits our ability to work together, and how creating an enemy or a scapegoat provides a means through which we actually cohere socially and we overcome that conflict through ritualized violence. That's ultimately how Christ frees us from the need for a scapegoat and brings us together. If that's interesting to you, then again, check our YouTube channel. We'll have some more videos that'll walk through all that process. But for today, what becomes really important in a conversation about wealth is to recognize how all of our coveting in the biblical language is both imitative and triangulated. So, example here. Put two kids in a room with a hundred different toys. Wait until the first kid picks up a toy and starts playing with it, and what does the second child immediately do? They want that toy, right? In fact, we see this all the time with our son and our dog. They have 15,000 balls in the backyard, and inevitably, the only one either of them want is the one the other is playing with. So it's imitative, but it's also triangulated because look at how everything is sold to us. Singer X or basket player Y uses products Z, so so should you. And what is that even about? Why would I care about what toothpaste LeBron James uses and yet I do? Because it's not really about the toothpaste, it's not really about the toy, it's about wanting to imitate the desire that I see in another person. And I know that's a lot about the theory of desire. And if you all think that's too theoretical, then you have no idea of the sophistication that sits behind an advertising industry that understands all of these forces very intimately. And who have used these ideas to then radically reshape our imagination of wealth in this last generation. See, back in the 1950s, America was just emerging from the Second World War. And the war had pulled the US, along with most of the world, kicking and screaming out of the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, Truth is, things had gotten so bad economically that perhaps nothing short of that massive run-up of military borrowing and spending necessary to fight a world war could have turned the economy around. But now, with the war over, and the good guys triumphant, they're still left with massive debt, damaged cities, and returning veterans that all need jobs. Except, without a constant need for more tanks and bombs and guns, combined with people who've joined the workforce and don't want to leave it now, and a society that's gotten really used to being really frugal while there's a war going on, the economy was on the verge of slipping back into another Great Depression. And so essentially, In the 1950s, a new concept was created, the concept of obsolescence. Now, planned obsolescence was the idea that when stuff lasts too long, it's bad for the economy. So if you buy a phone and it works for 10 years, 
That's not good because we need you buying more new phones so that more people can have more jobs. And so basically, around this time, every company went to work figuring out what the minimum acceptable use period was. The toaster was redesigned to last two years instead of 10. Houses were built to last 40 instead of 80. And furniture was designed to last a season, not a lifetime. Except the problem with that is, how you get consumers to be okay with it. And this is what perceived obsolescence is about. Because along with a redesign of physical objects to reduce their longevity, marketing came along that made this a feature, not a bug. There was an ad a few years ago from Dodge Trucks where a pickup truck drove through an exploding barn and then pulled a Hercules transport aircraft across a stretch of tarmac and then wound its way through a beautiful mountain pass before it gently tucked you into bed and swang you a lullaby. The last part wasn't in the commercial, but it could have been, right? Because seriously, who is that ad targeted at? Jack Bauer and MacGyver exclusively? No, because it's not really meant to demonstrate anything useful about the vehicle in question. It's meant to feel, make you feel like your current truck or your 2006 Hyundai Accent, if that's what you happen to drive, is somehow inadequate or out of date or in desperate need of immediate replacement regardless of whether it actually does all the things you need a vehicle to do. Because these ads aren't designed to point to real needs in you. They're meant to evoke an emotional response, a desire in you. A mimetic story for the story behind the truck. A connection to the kind of life that truck would give you, an imitation of the person that you see yourself on the screen. The perception of what is in front of you is inadequate. And this is then what it makes it okay when your purchases doesn't last very long. Because that creates a platform for you to keep buying the desire that you've been taught to imitate. If you have ever said something like this, I can't wait for my phone to die so I can buy a new one, then you, like me, are a goldmine for every company out there. So listen to what the economist Victor Lebeau wrote in 1955. He said, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life that we convert the buying and the use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption, that the measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige be found in consumptive patterns, and that the very meaning and significance of our lives today be expressed in consumptive terms. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, and replaced at an ever-increasing pace. And we need to eat, drink, drive, dress, live, and breathe with ever more complicated and expensive consumption. And it's all because we don't know how to desire things for ourselves. And this is what is so strange and ironic and insidious about covetousness, that we are literally imitating each other into competition with each other, which is part of why I find the Ten Commandments such a fascinating window into the human story. Now, 
There's a couple different ways to list out the Ten Commandments or the Ten Sayings, as they are generally called by Jewish peoples. But they appear in Exodus 20 and then again in Deuteronomy 5, and the basic list goes something like this. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idol, nor bow down to worship it. You shall not misuse the name of God. You shall remember and keep the Sabbath day holy. And by the way, uh, we're not gonna take a lot of time to talk about this now, but if you wanna talk about an antidote to a culture obsessed with newer and better and faster and wealthier, learn to rest intentionally. Because not only is this about learning to stop and slow down and catch your breath, Sabbath is also about refusing to find your value exclusively in what you create. So the Jews come out of slavery in Egypt and what was their job there? It was to make bricks as fast and as efficiently as possible. Now see Exodus five if you wanna read that story. What is the first thing that God says to them after they exit that situation? It's this, don't you dare bring that slavery mentality that you are what you produce into this new land and reality. And every week, you stop and you do nothing. You create nothing, you contribute nothing, and you know yourself as worthy and loved while you don't do it. Rest is a much bigger category than you think it is. But let's continue. He says, you will respect your father and your mother. You must not commit murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not give false evidence against your neighbor. And then finally, you shall not be envious of your neighbor's goods. You shall not be envious of your neighbor's house, nor wife, nor anything that belongs to your neighbor. And over the years, it has been this final saying that has drawn perhaps the greatest deal of speculation. Because what many commentators and rabbis and teachers have noticed over the years is that while each of the first nine commandments are pretty clear, the last one is incredibly nebulous. I mean, if I watched you intently enough and I followed you long enough, if I hired an investigator, I could probably eventually determine your faithfulness to the first nine, right? But the last one is almost inherently ambiguous by design. No other gods, no false idols, don't use God's name in vain, remember Sabbath, honor your parents, killing, committing adultery, stealing, lying, these are all external actions. But coveting, wanting what your neighbor has, imitating your neighbor's desires, that's kind of beyond the realm of rules, isn't it? I could lie and I could try to conceal it. I could murder and try to get away with it. What if I just imitated my neighbor? What if I learned to want what they had? Not because it was malicious, not because I ever planned to steal it from them. What if I just wanted it because I wanted it? This is why everything in the Bible always needs to be read in the context of the larger story. Because I think we can be honest about this. 
The 10 sayings are a pretty dismal attempt to legislate morality. And the truth is, the Jewish people knew that. And so they went and they counted up all of the real rules in the Hebrew scriptures and they tallied up 613 mitzvot. So there are 613 rules because rules need to be precise and exacting and verifiable, but then there are 10 sayings. And this is one of the fundamental differences in how the Hebrews read their scriptures from how we often do. We tend to imagine that we could take 10 commandments out of the book of Exodus and put them on a plaque or a wall and they could keep their meaning, but they can't. Because these 10 sayings were set in stone, but before that they were set in a story. And that story was the story of the Exodus. A story about a God who hears the cries of the oppressed, those slaves who are working hard to build wealth for someone else, and a God that slowly but surely reveals God's self to those people. First, it's this burning bush before Moses. Then it's the challenge of this God set against the gods of Egypt. Next is a showdown with Pharaoh and a daring escape through the waters of the Reed Sea. And it's at the end of that story that we come to the 10 sayings, which begin, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of your slavery. So even right at the start of the passage, God is reminding us that what follows has to flow from what has just happened in the community. And so for the Jewish people, the 10 sayings were never meant to be a model for morality or society or a just world. The 10 sayings were an agreement based on the character of God already revealed in the tale. And this is why A lot of rabbis have read the 10 sayings not as a set of rules, but as the preamble to a promise from God. I am the Lord your God who loves you, who is always on your side, who brought you out of slavery and who wants the best for you, so trust me. Don't steal, don't lie, don't murder, don't abandon me, don't abandon each other. Because if you do, that will unleash all kinds of destructive forces that will begin to drag you all the way back down into a new kind of slavery that will be just as oppressive, just as destructive, just as crushing as the one you came out of. But if you keep me at the center, if you learn to honor rest, if you learn to respect community, if you can refrain from killing and cheating and stealing and lying, then what I promise in return is a completely new experience of neighbor. A life free from the kinds of unhealthy desires that are already driving you mad. See, a lot of rabbis read the 10 sayings and what they saw was not a list of rules but a bargain being offered to humanity that if you can follow this path, then you will want for nothing. You will no longer covet your neighbor's house. You will no longer covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. 
You see, it's at least possible that the 10 sayings are really nine rules and one promise about life on the other side. As Walter Brueggemann writes, the final utterance of God in this awesome confrontation at Mount Sinai is this, you will no longer covet. And it's as though this fearsome God has saved the sharpest zinger for his final statement and yet this terse moment seems an appropriate pivot point to the core narrative of ancient Israel. The narrative begins in the wondrous creation lyric of Genesis 1 and culminates in Sabbath. It sweeps through the ancestral narratives, the emancipation from Egypt, the brief narrative of wilderness sojourn, the defining confrontation at Sinai, and it travels to the edge of a land promised. But if we trace this entire movement from Adam to Moses, we may suggest that at the core, this story is about coveting. This 10th saying refers to an original attitude of desire of being propelled in ways we do not understand to desire what is not our own. It is a recognition that desire itself becomes the powerful seductive force that skews one's life and God offers us a way out. And this is where I think we have to start if we're ever going to get our heads around wealth in any meaningful way. Because if we start with money, we miss the point. The recognition begins that we are embedded at the core of our human experience, formed by imitative desires we don't fully understand. We are, all of us by design, social creatures. We become who we are through imitation. We want what we want because we see someone else with it. And our entire culture, our economy is built on exploiting this fundamental human flaw. But we are now offered a way out of mimetic slavery. And this is why the 10 sayings are really far more ambitious than we often give them credit for. Because they are not simply here to sort of hem us in with some healthy regulations. The ambition here is to help this new nation of Israel exit the pattern of being driven by unhealthy desire itself. But that means that the first step in getting our relationship to wealth under control is to reframe our imagination of wealth itself. Away from the ability to acquire whatever we want and toward an imagination of wealth as the freedom from fabricated desire to begin with. And when that happens, when wealth becomes the freedom from want, then wealth can actually become more than just the money in our bank accounts. It can begin to include our resources and our energy, the passion, the relationships, everything that you and I have at our disposal to create a more just, inclusive world for our neighbors. And when that happens, then we can begin to imagine the far more important conversation about all of the wealth that God has actually entrusted to us and what the responsibility on the other side is about. But that is for next week. So let's pray. God, for all the ways
that we are driven by desire we don't really understand. That we have simply copied the desire, we have imitated what we see in each other. That we have wanted things simply because someone else has them. Would we recognize that that is always a path for conflict? It is inevitably a path for comparison. It is a path that will lead us down a destructive force that will tear neighbors and neighborhoods apart. And instead, God, might we begin to see the real ambition you have embedded in our story. That you're not here simply to hem us in with some healthy regulation. You are promising a life free from these unhealthy desires. If we can actually love each other and care for each other, look out for each other, that there is a life on the other side of that free from the need to want what another has. Might that be the real goal when it comes to our wealth, not the ability to get what we want, but the freedom to be free from that want. To know what it is that it takes to survive, to share that with each other, to build neighborhood and community in healthy, life-giving ways but to be free from the mimetic desires that draw us into conflict with another. In that, might we become truly thankful for everything that we have. And might we see it now as opportunity to share with those who don't. May our story begin to reflect the grace and the generosity and the care that we see in yours. In the strong name, of the risen Christ we pray, amen.